Hello, First Church. (laughs) This is John 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, we're, we're uh, in a series on the book of John, and it has been a long time. Thanks for hanging with me on this. Um, but we are reaching a point that is so powerful, so important for us and in this series. This is huge. And the key thought here that I want you to begin to think, wrestle with is that if the resurrection is true, then it is the ultimate truth in the universe. And it takes precedence over anything else in the world or your life. If the resurrection is true, the meaning of the resurrection is the most important thing for us to work out. But what I want us to do too, as we look at that, I want to remind you, this is something we've done a number of times. We want to try as best we can to get into the shoes of the people who are in this passage. We want to try to understand What's going on? What's going on in their mind? Now, obviously, some of this is we're just assuming things, but also some of this we can know. And I'll show you how this works out. In this passage, I want to see, show you something first. I want to show you what it meant, the resurrection, what it meant to the disciples. And we had just read, uh, and I, you know, it's okay to read things twice. Early the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and, the, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put, 
put him. All right? So now let's think like Mary. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? Okay, first of all, we know Mary Magdalene, Jesus, she was demon possessed, Jesus healed her. She was spiritually, emotionally, and mentally oppressed. And Jesus freed her. Now, you think about what that means in that culture where she would have been looked down upon, even spat upon. And the people who did those types of things would have thought that was the righteous thing to do. Jesus has healed her. He's freed her. He treated her like a human being. He elevated her in ways that had never happened before. He loved her like she had never been loved before. And now she is in this profound sadness. She watched the man who freed her, healed her, elevated her, loved her. She watched him die. She watched it. And so, so she, this is the end. This is the worst thing that could have happened. She is profoundly distraught and sad. And so she's going on this Sunday morning, she's going to the tomb with spices to anoint the body. Now, we, we know already that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did that. And she's coming with more. It's a way of honoring the person who has died. And it's a way of showing your love for the person who had died. So try to understand now, she's going to put spices on the body of the man who treated her like no man had ever treated her before. And so try to understand her sense of hopelessness, of pain, of resignation, that this is the end. You know, this is the hard thing sometimes about trying to live in another person's shoes, trying to understand another person's emotions to have empathy towards another person. And the hard thing is that sometimes the best way to have empathy for another person is to try to think of a time where something similar happened in your life. In your life. Have you ever felt like a total failure? Have you ever had a tragedy that totally devastated you? Have you ever done something that ruined you? You just felt like this is the end. You, 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 even if you didn't think about it seriously, those, it crossed your mind. I'd rather be dead than go through this. That's where she's at. If we can empathize with that, we will understand more of what's going on. So already, here we go in this first two verses. The theory of grave robbery has been advanced. She's saying, look, someone took him. So let's look at this. We're talking about what it means to the disciples. Here we go with Peter and the other disciple. Now that other disciple, we're very sure is John. John often self-identified himself as the other or the one Jesus loved. It was a designation that Jesus had kind of had given him, so he uses that. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Okay, so she said, they've stolen the body. Now they're devastated also. Let's remember, before they hear this, and now this, it's like adding insult to injury? Really? You're gonna kill him in the most humiliating, shameful way that a person can be killed in the known world, and now you're gonna desecrate his body? Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. This is like an astonishing thing, the way John's writing this. 
Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So, so Mary goes early, stones rolled away. She goes, they've stolen his body. Help. She goes to Peter and John. So they come to investigate. John gets there first. Now, let's just take a minute to understand why, you know, I guess maybe what they would see if the body was there, all right? It would look something like this. First of all, there's a large linen strip that gets folded around the person and then they tie up the feet and tie up the knees. They come to the waist. Now, this is, it's partly open. It would come over, it would tie, and then they would use strips to bind it. And then they would pull, it'd be like a little hood. And then they would take a cloth, which was the face cloth. It was a very special thing to them. And they would just cover, lightly cover the face. Then what they would have done is pour, poured all these spices and everything on the wrappings. You, you, you don't see that here and those dry and harden, so it becomes a hard case, in a sense, around the person. And so that's, that's kind of what they're seeing. They're seeing these wrappings. They're seeing, but if you notice, it says the face cloth had been folded and set aside. Like somebody had come in and, you know, taken a, a few moments to, but the rest of it is laying right where it was. And see, the idea is it's still in the shape of a body. The cloth didn't collapse because it's encased in this gluey kind of substance. And so it seems like it's still in the shape of a body. So that's what they're seeing. There's a passage in Isaiah that foretells this. This is, there's, it's rich. There's a lot here. On this mountain, it's right there in Jerusalem. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. This is one of those, it's for all, the Messiah is coming for all people. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. See, Isaiah said, you're gonna see a shroud. You're gonna be, and it's gonna be rendered useless. He predicted this 750, 1,000 years before. So they come to investigate. And John now is gonna tell us something that's very key here. Because when John the apostle first stops, it says he stops at the edge and he just looks in. He sees, the word see is in there. That's the common Greek word for see. It's called blepo. I don't know why you need to know blepo, but that's it, blepo. Anytime you say, you want to do something funny with somebody, you can say, I blepo you. You know, you just say that and watch them think that you're making fun of them somehow. That's just the common word for see. It's the ability for your eyes to make out an object, right? That's all it means, basically. And so what did he see? He sees this linen. He sees these great these, these uh, grave clothes. They're not ripped up and thrown in a pile. They're, they're in an orderly way. And John doesn't enter, maybe out of respect for the dead, uh, maybe because he thought the body was in there somewhere and this could be an unpleasant sight. We don't know. He just hesitates. But who never hesitates, right? Peter. Peter leads with his mouth and his body follows a few minutes after, right? He just blazes in. Peter, there's great things about that, and there's not so great things. He sees, it says Peter, he sees. All right, let me get, 
In verse six, Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight to the room, and he saw the strips of linen lying there. This is not blepo. This is another Greek word for see. And this is why this is so key. This is why John is such a brilliant writer. He gives us the word theoreo. It's where we get the word theory from. And this word means you see something and you kind of see the implications, but you can't understand the implications. And so you furiously think back and forth. It's, it's a word that's used for arguing back and forth. It's a word that, that's used for going over and over and over, trying to make sense of what you see. This is great. John is telling us, Peter walks in and this is not what he thought he was gonna see. He can't believe what he's seeing. And so he's working it out furiously in his mind. So this is, this is and then Peter, he's, he says he's, he's thinking and thinking and thinking, trying to figure out, trying to fit it into his worldview. He's saying to himself, what does what I see mean? In other words, when he enters the tomb, he, sent, he doesn't simply say, aha, this is exactly what I was expected to see. He doesn't give it a passing glance. He considers, he thinks, he wrestles with the evidence. He thought deeply and carefully, why is there no body here? He probably thought something like this, it's been stolen. Someone stole the body. That's the most obvious explanation. But why did they leave the wrappings? How could they leave the wrappings like this? This doesn't make sense. The body would be a mess to carry out of the wrappings, starting to decompose. It would be terrible. It's much simpler just to carry it in the bag. And then why leave it like this? With the head place, the headpiece folded like it was supposed to be folded before it was used. Who would take time to do that if they were stealing a body? Maybe Jesus isn't dead. But no one survives a crucifixion. And wouldn't the wrappings be, have to be torn to pe- broken up and torn up if Jesus came to life and got out? And how did the stone get moved? See, he's, this is all going through his mind. Because he's looking at it and he's thinking, it's as if the body just passed right through the grave clothes. How can this be? Then in verse eight, we see in verse eight, finally, the other disciple, that's John, had reached the tomb. He had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Now we have a different word for saw, all right? This is a Greek word for saw, especially when it's coupled with believed, means you see things and you go to what is the most obvious explanation here? Right? So John's going to the most obvious explanation, which is somehow Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he's believing that this, you know, oh man, like sometimes when we sing that, uh, there's a Christmas song uh, that, that talks about the thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. John's getting this little thrill of hope. But he doesn't understand still. It's because it's totally out of their realm of experience. So verse nine tells us they still didn't, have it down. They didn't understand how this all connected with scripture. He believes, but maybe not completely. He has trouble, still has trouble grasping the implications of what he's seeing. Now, this is interesting because John's writing this. John is admitting that he struggled. I struggled with this, but somehow I believe. Now, we need to do the same that Peter and John are doing if we're going to believe. <clears throat> we have to look at the evidence. We have to struggle with it back and forth. Think hard. 
and evaluate. Now, I know you can say, well, Bob, you know, just hang on. We don't have the evidence they had. We don't. But we have evidence. There's lots of evidence. And let me give you two. I can't, uh, you, you need to, if you, if you search for this, there's plenty. Let me know if you're interested. But there, there's a good amount of evidence. It's too much to go over. But let me mention two things, two pieces of evidence. The first is, now, the first is this. It's a very classical objection. We're going to deal with this uh, to the resurrection. It goes a bit like this. It says, you know, those are olden times. Those people believed a lot of crazy things, healings and miracles. They were fine with those kind of things. So it's natural for them to also make the jump to a resurrection. They're predisposed to believing these types of things, that someone could have been raised from the dead. Now we live in the age of science. We know that miracles aren't true, so we know that they were wrong, right? It was easier to believe in miracles back then. That's one objection. But here's when we deal with the evidence. Peter, John, they are very religiously oriented people. They were very well versed in the Jewish religion. They knew the Hebrew Bible. They knew the scriptures. And there's, resurrection did not fit into that. Not like they're seeing. Actually, resurrection doesn't fit into anyone's view. Any time of the world. But for the Jews, now there were Jews who believed there would be a resurrection. But it was a group resurrection at the end of time. There's no individual resurrections. It would be like, you know, today... Eagles are going to play that other team. No, no. And, and if I told you that Jalen Hurts is going to win the Super Bowl today, you'd say, oh, the Eagles are going to win? And I'd say, no, not the Eagles. Jalen Hurts, he's going to kick off. He's going to play defense. He's going to play offense. Special teams, all by himself, he's going to, defeat the Kansas City Chiefs single-handedly. You would say, Bob, that's stupid. You're stupid. I would have earned it in that, right? That's ridiculous. It's a team sport, Bob. One person can't do it. That's what the Jews believed about the resurrection. It's a team sport. We all get resurrected at the end of time. One person can't do it by themselves. It's not in the realm of possibility. That's why it tells us that Peter is struggling with this. That's why it, it, this furious back and forth that he's having. Because it doesn't make sense to him. Think about it. Their worldview, everything they'd ever believed, changed radically overnight. There was no gradual turn after months of discussion and arguments back and forth, and then them finally saying, hey, as a church, we're going to say Jesus was risen from the dead. No, they changed like that overnight. Thousands of people abandoned strongly held beliefs in an incredibly short time, and they were ready to die for it. That requires some sort of explanation. I was reading a historian the other day. He's, he's not a Christian, but he was saying, I don't know what happened, but something so extraordinary happened that their lives all changed instantly. We've never seen anything like that in the history of the world. And he was quick to add, but I don't think it was a resurrection, right? And I wanted to say, so what was it, right? What was it? 
they all got a good feeling. No. You know, he, he, so he's willing to dismiss it, but he's not willing to say what, what takes the place of it. So that's a piece of evidence. This, this is a historical fact. The world changed. People changed what they believed overnight. You have to deal with that. Here's the second. <clears throat> Thinking about Mary Magdalene. There is a Greek philosopher named Celsus. He was a great enemy of Christianity. He wrote a lot on why Christianity was not good for people. He wrote a lot on why Christianity was not true. And one of his main lines of attack involved Mary Magdalene. Excuse me. Involved Mary Magdalene. Okay, now, remember the world that we're in. So please don't get mad at me. I am not saying what I think, all right? He wrote this, talking about one of the main reasons we can't believe in Christianity. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? This, yeah, yeah, Bob did not say that, Bob did not say that. This is a misogynistic statement, all right? That is what people thought those days. Women were held in low esteem. Women had very low social status. And so to him, this is an incredible weakness in the argument for Jesus Christ. A woman? Really? The first person that tells everyone? He just laughs. He says, nobody who can think would believe that. So it's misogynistic. It's elitist, right? I don't believe him. Just to, let's just cover that. I'm glad this, you know, I'm glad this isn't being recorded live because this is how, this is how you get just done over. All they do is pick out that one line I read, you know, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? And they say, Bob Mosley said that. That's his kind of church, right? But you know what's interesting is that was considered a, a very, a, a, a very, uh, not powerful thing, a poor thing for, for the testimony of Christianity. It's a good reason not to believe because the first witness was a woman. But today it's a great strength for Christianity. How so? Because if you're making up stories about the resurrection and writing them down in that day and age, you would never make a woman the first eyewitness. That would destroy the premise. It would be a fatal flaw. That is why the most historically plausible explanation for the women being the first eyewitness is that they were. It's the only plausible way to look at that. Now, aren't you glad we're past that? Past those days, we're all equal now. 50% of the CEOs in the United States of Fortune 500 companies are women. 50% of our elected representatives are women. Men and women get paid the same for the same amount of work. Oops. Maybe we're not as past it as we think we are. But in every culture, in every historical moment, whether it's an Eastern culture, it's a Western culture, whether it's ancient or whether it's modern, whether it's progressive or traditional, the resurrection never makes sense if you try to fit it in your worldview. There is nobody that was prepared for that. Nobody was prepared for that outrageous claim. And so two pieces, first of all, the incredible change in thousands of people's lives overnight. Secondly, the fact that the person that would most likely be dismissed is lifted up as the first eyewitness, is given to us as the person we should trust. Everything does not, the resurrection does not fit in anybody's worldview, but everything makes sense when you put the resurrection into your worldview. 
things start to fit. It's just like on the road to Emmaus when Jesus came across those two, the disciples and they were talking and he was talking to them and they didn't know what had happened and they couldn't explain it. And, he, and so he explained the scriptures to them and all of a sudden they went, it makes sense. It makes everything make sense. All those scriptures, that scripture I read to you from Isaiah 25, they all knew that. They all knew it by heart. And suddenly they see Jesus and they go, that's what Isaiah's talking about. It makes sense now. The resurrection begins to make your life make sense. And if you've never wrestled with who Jesus is, you've never looked at the data or considered the claim, don't ask if the resurrection fits into your worldview and then reject it neatly. But do this, consider the facts. Consider the fact that the resurrection may make your entire world make sense. Grapple with it. That's what it meant to the disciples, what it meant to Mary. All right? That's the second thing I want you to see. That starts with verse 11. The first one and two kind of had that, but now verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over, bent over to look into the tomb and saw and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. So Mary, here's this ardent, devoted follower of Jesus. Previously, she was deeply troubled and tormented. She didn't have any kind of meaningful type of community life. Social outcast, living on the margins, probably destitute. And Jesus dignified her. He rescued her. And now he's gone. And she's crying. And the word there for crying is a word for sobbing uncontrollably. It's not just sitting there. <laughs> it's somebody who just, because imagine as we try to put ourselves in her, what would she feel like? The worst thing in the world, she, her savior died. Never saw that coming. Totally devastated. And then someone's desecrated the body. Someone's stolen the body. It's just she can't imagine it could have gotten worse, and it did get worse. And she's just weeping. Now, there's two angels in the tomb. What do they know? They know the whole story, right? And they're like, what's up, yo? This is the greatest news in the world. Why are you crying? See, they're, they're, they can't get that. They're like, two and two, it's four. Come on, work on it. And so she's wailing in grief. The angels are amazed. Wait, the universe has been turned upside down and you're sad? This is the greatest news in the world. And so it says in verse 14, oops, I forgot to write, I'll write it, I'll read it. At this she turned, I forgot to put it in the reading too. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She did not realize that it was Jesus. He said, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? It wasn't there. Thinking she, he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Now, everybody always asks me this. We've been studying this sometimes with groups and small groups and all that kind of stuff. Why didn't she recognize him? I mean, don't we get like this? Yeah, it's, it, we get this heavenly body. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but this is not his old, it's been brought back to life. It's new. It's the same and yet not the same. The other thing is, she's crying her eyes out. And so she doesn't see him very, maybe, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But he asks her, why are you crying? 
And then to calm her sorrow, all he does is say her name, Mary. Now, she's probably been used to being called a lot of things in life. Alienating things, unkind things, unflattering things. But he called her by her name, Mary. And at this moment, she understands what the resurrection truly means. And here's what it means. We will never understand who we are or what we're worth until we're called by name, until someone calls us by name, not by title, not by function, not, not a, a, something that addresses how we look, not being called a servant, but by name. And in our Western culture, the prevailing condition is that we are always in search of an identity. We have an obsession with finding our identity. It's everywhere, trying to figure out who we are. And sociologists call this expressive individualism. And it's essentially the view that we ourselves, we are the primary authors of our identity. We, we, are the somehow, uh, we somehow decide who we are and that we are a whether we're a fruitful human being or whether we're a useless human being, it's expressive individualism. It means to express who you are. It means to honor and express the inner voice that you have and do anything that it tells you. To, to, to hold it back or to not listen to that inner voice is, called, is, is thought to be repressive. You're repressing yourself. But here's the problem. If the primary influence that forms your identity is your inner voice, how do you know you can trust your inner voice? I don't know about you, but there are times where my inner voice has lied to me. It has told me things that I'm way better than I am. It has inflated my ego at times. It has told me at times what a great athlete I am or was. It has told me at times, you know, how smart I am. It's inflated my ego. It's inflated my sense of worth. I can't trust it. Sometimes it's deflated. You're a loser. You're worthless. You did that. You're a nobody. That's my inner voice. Now, I, you, some of you are staring at me blankly, and maybe you have great inner voices that tell the truth to you all the time. But mine doesn't. Mine lies like a rug. All right? So, so the, how do we know we can trust this inner voice? For instance, Let's say you have a child, or let's say you know, you know, got a niece or a nephew, or you know an eight-year-old child who comes to you and says, you know, I've been thinking, and I've been listening to my inner voice. I have a grandson that would say this. I know who I am. I found myself. I'm eight years old. I've listened. I've found myself. I know who I am. Right? What would you say to that eight-year-old? Oh, there's so much more you don't know. There's so much you don't understand. There's so much of a world context out there that you have no clue what's going on. Listen to your parents. Listen to the people who care for you. Listen to the people who have insight into you. Listen to the people who know you well, who understand you, who love you. You may have an inner voice at eight, year old, eight years old, but let me tell you something, at nine, it's gonna change into a different voice. And then in the 20s, you'll have a different voice. In your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your inner voice will change all the time. You are never getting everything you need to know from that. So how do we get our identity if we can't trust our inner voice? It's not looking into a mirror and saying, you know, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm valued. Have you ever tried that? I listened to a self-help thing one time, and they said, just do that every day, like five times a day. 
for a week and your life will be changed. I did it. It didn't work. <laughs> At the end of the week, I'm like, you're not what you think you are. You're not that hot. You're not that great. You're not that smart. You're not that anything. So how do we get our identity? How do we do that? You get your identity when someone looks at you and tells you you are loved and you are valued. In other words, you're known by name. For children, it should come from their parents. For Mary Magdalene, it comes from Jesus. And Jesus, he knows her name. And when she hears Jesus say, Mary, that's all he, that's all he had to say. She doesn't know who he is. She's not sure what's going on. And she goes, Mary. He just goes, Mary. And she goes, that's the voice I know. That's the voice I trust. That's the voice that loves me. That's the voice that values me. That's the voice that lifted me up out of the mud and gave me a life. I know that voice. I know that voice. This is the love of my life. He gives me identity. He gives me a name. He has come back for me. See, the resurrection wasn't merely a show of power, but it was, in fact, a show of love. He loved her so much, he came back for her. A love that's, in fact, stronger than death. He died, and he came back for her so that he could call her by name. He knows your name. He values you. He loves you. He came back for you. In Jeremiah, God says to the children of Israel, he says, I have your name engraved in my hand. I have a tattoo. And it's you. It's you. It's me. That's how much he loves us. He tells her to go tell the message to the others. Isn't this interesting? The first person in the whole world that Jesus chooses to share the gospel is a woman who struggled with serious spiritual, emotional, and mental health issues. Not a seminary graduate, not a theologian, not an expert. It was Mary Magdalene. He says, I'm giving you a job. Go tell everybody that you saw me. Go tell them. Go tell them the body was not stolen. He's been raised from the dead. And Mary gets back all she thought she had lost when he died. She gets it all back and more. So that's what it meant to Mary. And finally, what it means to the world. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And so this is what it means for the world. He tells her, you're an ambassador. I want you to go tell others. And he's saying the same thing to us. You're my ambassador. Go tell others. Now, when you see that it's Mary, I mean, this is such a perfect illustration that salvation is not based on pedigree. It's not based on moral attainment. It's not based on talent. It's not based on good works. Jesus is saying, I save by my work, not by your work. I save not the people who think they're the strongest, but only those who understand that they're weak and they cast themselves on me. 
That's because this resurrection faith, this, this love that Jesus shows, it's born through grace. And he says, Mary, I came for you and also for the whole world, so you can't hold on to me. Can you imagine how tightly she was holding? She watched Jesus die. He's raised from the dead. Her life, her whole worldview has been suddenly torn all to pieces. And all she knows is there's this man right there. And she grabs him. One of the things that uh, for historians, when they evaluate things, they, they, they look for things that would be accurate, but not necessarily uh, uh, needed or appealing. In other words, things like saying the women were the, were the first witnesses. Um, that implies accuracy because it's not something you would lie about, right? And, and in this whole thing, what are we seeing? We're seeing the natural reactions of natural human beings. This is not some sort of a dressed up religious document that's may have been made to convince the masses. Because if, if that's what they wanted, they, they would have done it totally different. It would not have been like this. Because what happens? Not long after this, we're told that almost all the disciples still doubted. They still doubted. Doesn't make them sound, sound like good, strong church leaders, does it? And so there's all these little bits, and one of them is that she just grabbed onto him. That's such a natural human reaction. The first thing she thought of is to grab him, is to grab him. And he says, you can't. There's more to do. Go and tell my brother. And I love this. He didn't say, go and tell, the, tell my servants. He said, go tell my brothers. He's emphasizing something to her. We're family. We're all accepted. We're all loved. It's a personal thing. He's saying, you have a name, and you're not merely a servant. You're a child. You're a brother. You're a sister. You're known by name. For every one of us, that is true. And it's not just his old body brought back to life. It's a new creation. And I would encourage you, encourage you to think this through. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you got doubts. I'd love to talk to you about it. Not to not to harass you or make this some sort of an argument where I think I've won or anything like that, simply to discuss. I get to do it all the time, and I love it. But I would encourage you to think like they did. Mary, when she says, I have seen the Lord, she uses that Greek word for seeing, thinking it through, and then deciding this is the truth, realizing what it means. So we evaluate evidence. This is a part of being a Christian. You evaluate evidence. Evidence isn't all of it, but it's a part of it. Because after we look at evidence, then we say, okay, by faith, I'm accepting. And so faith enters into the equation. But we all have questions. I still have questions sometimes. But I do know this. There was a day in my life when I accepted Christ as my Savior because he had lived the life I couldn't live and he took my sins and he died the death that I deserved and he changed me. He changed me. And I knew it had changed me because a few weeks after that, one of my brothers and my mom were like, what has happened to you? He changed me. And it wasn't like this, like as much as like them. It was a process and it's still going on. But he changes people from the inside out. He rose on that third day to prove that he could take my sins. And now, through the Holy Spirit, he lives in me and others. And I'm able to live the life I was made for a life of purpose, 
I don't always get it right. I blow it a lot. But I have a purpose in this world that he has given me. And we can live for purpose or we can live for pleasure. And, and the only thing I, I want to worry, worry about when I say this is that maybe for some people it's like, yes, I want a purpose. I, 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 want, to go, I want to go just change Africa. That's what I want to do. I want to go change Asia. I want to go. No, it might be something little. It might be change one little kid in a nursery. But it's still the purpose. And the purpose is the same. And if we're going to go change the places that are the least Christian, maybe I should have said, I'm going to go change Europe. It's the least believing continent in the world. But it may be something very simple. It may be, I'm going to take cookies to my neighbor. Maybe they're having a tough time. Maybe they're not having a tough time. I'm just going to take cookies to my neighbor. I'm just going to do, it might be little things, but he has purpose for you to a purpose to change in your life and others also. And it's because of this, this resurrection that flipped people's lives upside down instantaneously. There's no explanation for that. And so as we leave, you leave this place, you walk out into a world where there's people who are looking for purpose. There's people who are looking for people who can say, my life has been changed. Really, how? Because I don't know if you've noticed it, but man, helping people change their lives is like a big business right now. And it keeps growing. Why does it keep growing? Because it doesn't work. People need, we need Jesus. We're going to close. I'm going to close in prayer. And also, I'll just pray for the meal. That way, you can just start as fast as you can. Um, we're going to pick up some chairs and set out some tables and that kind of thing. But uh, again, I want to tell you, I, I, I'm thankful you're here. I appreciate you being here and worshiping with us. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we studied a few months ago, the accuracy and the historicity of the four Gospels is, is incredible. And now, Lord, they give, us, um, they give us testimony of what happened. And Father, we thank you for the true testimony of your, how you change people's lives. Pray that all of us, Lord, would seek that continually uh, in our lives. Lord, we give you thanks that you loved us so much you came back. In Jesus' name. Oh, and the meal too, God. We thank you. We bless you for the meal. In Jesus' name.